You, you know when you tell a little child you're going to do something, it just changes their whole outlook on that day. They don't physically even have what you promised them in their hand. It's just changed everything. I remember when our kids were little and you, we would say, hey guys, you know, we're going to go to, you know, we're going to go for a walk. We're going to go to Tim Hortons and get you guys a donut. Donut! They, they don't have it, but in their hearts, <laughs> I mean, it's like a reality simply because you declared it was so. I had an experience like that earlier, about a month or so ago, uh, when I, I purchased tickets to take Nigel to go see uh, the Avengers movie. So I bought the tickets way in advance. So he, the, they were purchased. Dad did the purchase. Changed everything. He's excited day to day. I can't wait. I'm so excited about this. I was, you know, because I'm a responsible parent, I had to take him out of school early, go see this movie. And so I pull up to the school and I go to the office and he's, I can see him coming down the hallway and he's, he's just beaming. Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't physically gone to see the movie yet, but he'd been living in the reality since I made that purchase in the past. And we're starting a new series today that should captivate our hearts as the church as we look to God's word to see how it is that what God has purchased in the past changes scandalously our day-to-day. The the gospel that we celebrate has a profound impact in the day-to-day because what God has done in the past affects our reality in the present and is something that's going to be totally accomplished and realized in the future. We're going to start a series uh, called Rest, Renewal, and Reconciliation as we look at uh, the work of the Spirit through the church And this morning, our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start uh, reading in uh, verse 5. And then we're going to, over the next number of weeks, look at the power of the Holy Spirit through the the church uh, in the book of Acts. This morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 5. He who's prepared our heavenly dwelling for us is God, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And therefore, in reverent awe of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope that it is known also to your conscience. We're not condemning ourselves, commending ourselves to you again, but, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him whom for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is God's word. Now, throughout the New Testament, we're given numerous images by the Apostle Paul to understand what Christ has done. Sometimes we're given the image of a law court and uh, it's the image of uh, a judge and a guilty sinner and one who is condemned and then Christ comes and he takes our uh, place and he justifies us in the court of God by paying the price for our sin, this justification. Sometimes you get that law court picture. Other times he gives another image of, of a terrible slave market and there's slaves who need their, their freedom purchased and Christ comes and he purchases our freedom. Sometimes you get that image. Other times, Paul uses the image of the temple, where it's like God is this holy uh, God, and he's inaccessible to us. And so Jesus Christ comes, who's greater than the temple, who's the great and ultimate high priest, who offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins, so now we have access to God. Get these different images, but here in this passage that we just read, we're given a new image. And this is the image of a relationship that's totally devastated, totally broken, beyond repair, and unless there's a sacrifice in exchange, there's no reconciliation. This passage is all about the reconciliation of a broken relationship. And that is an endlessly relevant message when we consider that, first of all, it's the, it's the beating heart of the gospel, but also when we consider the world that we live in, right, where we've, we, we live in a world torn apart by strife, uh, relationships are torn apart personally, nationally, internationally. We live in a world that's got a tremendous amount of strife. This is a passage that speaks about radical reconciliation by God's grace. And so we're reconciled from being these enemies of God to being friends of God. And the marvel of the gospel is that we don't initiate this reconciliation. We don't even know we need it. We're not the ones pursuing it. God initiates it. And that's, that's what's undergirding Paul's marvel at the gospel as he starts talking about this reconciliation and, this, and essentially us being new creations. Like the father who purchased something in the past that radically causes this explosion of excitement in the life of us, the children, who now are living in light of and in response to and with the joy because of what had happened in the past. And it literally changes the day to day. In essence, what we're learning here is that God has reconciled us to himself by his grace and the gospel, and then he has given us a ministry of reconciliation so that through us, he will continue to reconcile others by his grace as we share the gospel. So I want to unpack the new creation this morning, and we're going to ask this passage a few questions. So we're going to look at it in this way. First of all, why do we, uh, why do we need it? And then secondly, uh, what does it mean to be made new? And then lastly, how do we live in light of being made new? So first of all, why do we need to be made new? Um, he uses this language of the new creation so that we'll consider the brokenness and everything that unraveled in the old creation. Because a new creation necessitates that, we have to, necessitates that we have to consider the old one. So first of all, why do we need to become new? Well, Genesis teaches us 
that we were called to live our lives and cultivate the earth according to a divine narrative. But we abandoned that divine narrative and we're, we've been living ever since according to an alternate narrative. So the reason we need to be made new is because we, we have to abandon the track of this alternate narrative and return to the divine narrative and live our lives uh, in relation to that in tremendous uh, freedom and joy. So the divine narrative was that we were to enjoy God, cultivate civilization that flourishes by enjoying the blessings of God as we live in worship to God and live in relation to God. That was the divine narrative. All of life is lived, everything you're up to during the week, the way you relate to your spouses, your children, your friends, your work, your vocation, your recreation. You kind of are relating to all of it with a sense of joy and thankfulness to God because none of those things you're enjoying are God. That's a divine narrative. The only way to actually be free to enjoy everything is not, not to need anything because your fulfillment is in God. That's the divine narrative. But they abandoned that divine narrative. And so the, altern the alternate narrative of our first parents in the garden of us today is, well, I don't have a need for a God because I'll fulfill my life and the core of my being with something other than God. And so what this passage is really getting at is that uh, getting us to consider in terms of the new creation and the old creation is that when Adam committed that original sin and all of us are sons and daughters of Adam, we're all essentially born into Adam. We're born into that same sinful condition. So we all have that same disposition. I don't need God. I am God. I'll fulfill my life at the core, you know, with something smaller than God. And of course, that what that results in is not necessarily consuming your life with bad things, but taking all the good things and giving them a coronation ceremony in your heart and making them ultimate things. And so that sin of leaving the divine narrative and living according to this alternate narrative, that sin is why we have the world that we have today. It is underpinning every form of hurt and pain and injustice and greed and violence and suffering and the endless catalog of things that we look at in the world and we, we say we wish the world wasn't like this because underneath all of it, the human heart, the human mind is operating on that alternate narrative and it needs, we need to be made new. We need to be a new creation so we can return to the divine narrative so that we can enjoy God and uh, enjoy our lives in relation to God. Now, in verse 10, we're given the ultimate reason why, we're need, why we need to be made new creations because of where the trajectory of human life is going, trajectory of where human life is going. And in verse 10, it says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus Christ is the judge and his, his divine standard is the judgment. Now, that's bad news. It's terrifying. And when I was a kid, when this wasn't explained well to me and it was just kind of left there, so everybody kind of left like, have a better week this week than you had last week because P.S. we're all standing before the judgment seat of God. Of, of Jesus Christ, it was terrifying because I don't care um, who you are and the kind of generally good and generally moral life you're living, uh, I'm sure none of us st standing next to Jesus Christ would say, yes, the goodness in my heart, mind, life, thoughts, and deeds equates to the standard of Jesus Christ. None of us would say that. You know, this last, a couple of weeks ago, I went out, um, and this is offensive. This is so offensive to us because we don't like the idea of being told we're not good people because we're like, well, I'm a generally good person. You know, we have a really high bar for why God should accept us. We're like, I haven't killed anybody, so God should be okay with that. You know, I'm just kidding. But a couple weeks ago, Susan and I went out and I ordered a drink and there was a hair in the drink. So I did not drink the drink because I have standards, right? You wouldn't drink the drink 
because you have standards. Here's the thing about these great and righteous lives that we think we're living. Next to Jesus Christ, our standards are hairs in the glass of God. He's like, no. Perfect love for one another. Perfect love. The the love of Jesus. Perfect love for enemies. The love of Jesus. Perfect love for the outcast, the downtrodden. Scandalous generosity. The love, the standard of Jesus. And in, in perfect love and relationship and devotion to God, the love of Jesus, that's the, that's the standard by which we're all being judged by. And of course, the good news of the gospel, which we're going to get to a little bit later, is that God has answered this predicament of us all standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later, why this, there is good news to answer that bad news. Now, um, so it, the text says we're going, to, we're going to be judged on base on what we're doing, whether it's good or bad. And it'd be easy to look at that and just make a moral conversation out of it. And, and uh, like, for example, I was speaking with a, um, this guy at length. And I told you the story already. He was, I was, he was driving me to the airport, and he was a Muslim guy. And we were having a discussion about the scriptures and uh, the Quran. And as we were having that discussion, he was explaining to me, he was saying, well, at the end of our life, we have to just make sure that our good works outweigh the bad ones. See, if you read... 1 Corinthians 5 and we read verse 10 about the judgment seat of Christ and you don't understand grace in the gospel, then we're going to assume it's kind of the same thing. We're just make sure at the end of your life, you know, your good works outweigh the bad ones. But then you're into a weird moral conversation and you're still not, we're still not on the divine track of really this is not about what we're doing. I'll explain it this way. What, a, a Christian changes his tire and an atheist changes his tire. You know, who, who did it right? Okay? A Christian cuts his grass, the atheist cuts his grass, who did it right? A Christian goes to work, the atheist goes to work, who did it? It's, this is not a moral conversation about us being morally superior to, to everybody else. In this. That's not what this is about, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Because it doesn't matter what you do if fundamentally the divine narrative has been deviated from and you're not worshipping Jesus, you're not worshipping God. It doesn't matter if it's Frisbee. If you're not worshiping God, then nothing, none of our works are good. Do you understand? This is what this text is really getting us to gravel with why we needed this reconciliation with God. Because no amount of checkboxes in the correct column is going to make it okay. And so, that, that'll, that'll unpack later as we, as we look at, at uh, what Christ has done in the text. But this is why we uh, need to be made new. Right? Because we're, we really don't get to choose whether or not we worship. We're only choosing what it is that we worship. And because of that, um, we repeatedly look uh, to things that are good things and exalt them to be ultimate things. And that's, of course, that abandonment of, of the divine narrative and back onto the, the alternate narrative. So for, for you, maybe it's uh, fitness or physical appearance or education or a career path where you, you've kind of orbited your life around those things to, to find a sense of validation or affirmation. Or maybe it's a friend group or prominence in the community or competency and success in the office, then that's what defines you. That's what gives you a sense of identity. Again, see, we need to be made new creations because that's an abandonment of the divine track and getting onto the, al- the alternate narrative. Or maybe uh, the way that you, you feel like you're seen or loved is is uh, through likes and hearts and stars and retweets. Or uh, maybe it's that your life is orbiting around uh, the freedom and options that come with your singleness, and you orbit your life around the freedom of that. Or maybe it's the idea that a spouse or children is somehow going to complete you, regardless of what these things are. None of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad things. 
But if we, do, we abandon that divine narrative onto the alternate narrative, not, none of those things, are, not, they've become ultimate things. And so we need to be made new. And so what does it mean to be made new? Well, when you look at verse 14 to 15, we're given a picture of how it is that we're made new and what it means. It says that one died for all and therefore all died. And Christ died for all so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. So you see now in that verse, what we're getting is that in the same way we were all in Adam, now with the narrative, what Paul is saying is actually you're, now you're all in Christ. By believing the gospel, your, your heavenly father has made a purchase in the past through Jesus Christ. And that has a fundamental impact and shift on who you are and your identity, your, the trajectory of your future, and has a glorious implication for your day to day. So that in your heart and your mind, the way you're relating to life, you're relating to it in a completely new way. He says that we, essentially we're all now uh, in Christ because it says one died, all died. That's putting, us, that's putting us in Christ. Theologians will use the term imputation. They'll say, well, our sin was imputed. You know, Adam's sin was imputed to us in the garden and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us on the cross. And that word imputed, it comes from the world of bookkeeping, which means to credit something somewhere else. That's the language that the Bible uses. It says, you know, Abraham's faith was credited, or sorry, you know, to him as righteousness. Meaning Abraham wasn't actually righteous, but his faith in the God that would save was counted as righteousness. So it's counted towards you. So what this text is saying is you were in Adam, and you were living according to an alternate narrative, but now you are in Christ. And this gives you a new reality, a new identity, and a new narrative from which to live, live out of and live from. And there's a gospel logic here that's really important to understand because it's, verse 17 says, the old, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Like it's definitive. It's come. Past tense. I mean, sorry, present tense, but because of, because of what happened in the past, right? Behold, the new has come. Here's what's important to understand about Paul's gospel logic. What he's saying is, you don't live this new life in order to increasingly become a new creation. Even though you feel like your life is a renovation project, and it's like doing rentals at your house, where before everything's beautiful, there's sledgehammers everywhere, and sometimes we feel like spiritually, before there's like the spiritual maturity, there's just sledgehammers everywhere, and there's rubble everywhere, and we look at our life and our struggle and our sin, and we say, I, I can't fathom that God is actually doing anything in my heart and my mind. I feel the same. But Paul says the new has come. So what that means is, the life that we're to be living is not to accomplish this. It's actually to live in congruence with what God has done. Aristotelian logic, if you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, you know what it's going to say, you're going to find in there is he's going to say, well, if you want to be just, then you do just acts. And through the ongoing process of rejecting your vices and embracing virtues and continually doing just acts, you become just. That's Aristotelian logic. Paul's logic is not that. He's not like, hey, church, keep on doing good, good and righteous things, love your neighbor and do good stuff, and more and more you're becoming a new creation. No, Paul says, I guess this is a done thing. You're new now. So, you're, so even though there is a radical discontinuity sometimes in your heart, in your mind, the things you think, that you, you're glad nobody knows that you think, the things you feel, that you're glad that nobody knows that you feel, where you're like, this is a dark, unevangelized part of my heart, and I don't think anything is, is it seems like nothing is new. The good news of the gospel is no, 
You have been wrapped up into Christ. He died. You died. We all died. He was raised. We've all been raised. And you are new. So now the scripture is not a burden towards you to call you to something new, which is where this passage goes. This is actually more than just a prescription for what you're to be doing. This is actually a description of who you actually are, of what God has actually accomplished, and what his spirit is actually doing to be, to, uh, in you and will continue to do through you. So what's been made new is your status, right? Because of the sacrifice of the sinless son of God, your status before God is new. It's irreversibly new. Despite your failure last week, last night, this week coming, your status is irreversibly new because of the grace of Jesus. Now, because of the ongoing work of the Spirit of God, then our hearts and our minds are being reanimated and relate to everything in our life in a way that is new. And that's where the passage goes, which we'll get to in just a minute. So the, this, this, this wording that Paul is using is getting us to think about two things. What is it that the gospel is for me and what is it that the gospel is doing through me? Two separate things. What the gospel is for me doesn't change. My day-to-day experience in trying to live out this gospel, now that does change. But yet, what the Spirit of God is doing uh, is continual and increasing, right? So that we relate to everything in a new way. Because Paul is saying, you actually have a new citizenship now. You're new. And you're to live in this, in this new way. And so, um, when, when, when we failed in Genesis, what you find immediately God's response is, is, I will not let sin and death be the last word. So God has another word, a final word, and it's the final word of gospel. And so what God is not allowing in your life and in my life is the finality of our failure, but that by the power of his spirit, uh, he has made us new by the gospel and by the power of spirit, that newness is becoming a reality day in and day out in our lives. We've been accepted by Christ, you know, think of it this way, Christ was righteous by nature, and so you are now declared righteous by grace. Even though you look in the mirror, and you're saying, I'm not seeing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ looking back at me in terms of my day-to-day being, but you know what? The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is looking back at you as far as, as God considers you, and that's scandalous, but that's the good news of what, ha- what has been made new. And so now we're supposed to live out of that newness, you know, um, because we've got this access. I told this story before, but I'll mention it again. For those of you who may be new, when Isaiah was a little guy, he played football and I was coaching his team and he had the opportunity to play at the Rogers Center before one of the Argos games. And we got to the game, you know, bad traffic and we, we got there super late. So I was like, put your helmet on, strap it on, put the mouth guard in. We got to literally run into the stadium with you like in full gear uh, so that you don't miss this this opportunity to play here and so here Isaiah and I are running towards uh, the gate where the players go in underneath to get out onto the field and I'm running and Isaiah's running and you know the security guards are standing there you know they didn't ask us one question they just opened the doors and we just ran right in we literally ran right in ran through the tunnel we ran out onto the field and started and 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 literally began began to to play they didn't even ask us any questions. Who are you? Why are you here? They just opened the door. Why? Because of what we were clothed in. They just took one look at him and goes, well, I know exactly where you belong. Based on, what, based on what you're clothed in, you belong on the field. And saw how I was dressed with the coach's uniform. Just opened open the door. That is what Christ has done for us. There is an access, our justification through God, and it's everything is new. Now, 
Here's the final thing that we want to consider. If, if we need to be made new creations, because Christ is the righteous judge, and what God has done to make us new creations has justified us, how do we live in light of all of this? What does it mean? Well, this is, how the, this is where the, the passage goes, because often we'll say, if we are new creations, why don't he see more of it? Right? If the church is new creations, why do I look out on the church in Canada and, and say things seem to be dismal? The church seems to be a beloved mess. It is a beloved mess. You know, this church in Corinth was also a beloved mess. Read First and Second Corinthians and let me know how righteous you think that church was. It was a gong show. But Paul is saying to this church, that's a total mess, guys, you need to live out of a new reality. You need to abandon this alternate narrative. And so here's the context. The church in Corinth, it was a large trading city. It was very immoral. If you've ever been to Greece, you know, uh, you know they've got uh, a wild emphasis on, uh, on sex. And you can get keychains with all sorts of things I won't say that are hanging off the keychains because there's kids in here. But I mean, it's just everywhere. It's prolific. And uh, so what had happened with the church in Corinth is basically the cultural narrative bled into the church, and the church was relating to each other according to the culture, same way. And so Paul writes the letter because he's like, um, you know, you've got ethnic divisions, you've got societal divisions, you've got class divisions, you've got uh, all of these other, you know, narratives that are are rolling in the culture that they just brought into the church. And so what Paul is saying is, there's an all-encompassing reality. The, the, the faith and the grace of Jesus Christ that Paul is calling this church to, that, that we, by extension, are being called to, it's, it's a faith that permeates everything, that impacts everything, that brings joy to everything. That's not the kind of Christianity that people talk about wanting today. They're like, yeah, you can be a Christian and that's fine. Park it in the corner, do your little thing on Sunday, and that's kind of as far as it goes. You know, come in, give God a solid, you know, 45 minutes, on a Sunday morning, and then just get on with your life. And so there's a radical discontinuity between the new, the new creation that we're to be, to be living in and the way that we kind of compartmentalize and relate to God. So what, what Corinth did is what we do. Allow the narrative of the culture to bleed into how we relate as, uh, to one another and to the city as a church. So <clears throat> Paul starts you know, uh, calling them to things. Verse 11 says that Christ is the king. And your English translations talk about, you know, the fear of God. That's a, it's a reverent awe. It's not like a phobia of being afraid to God. It's, it's about living your life in reference to him. It's that he's true north on your compass. So what Paul is saying to Corinth is, I don't know what sort of uh, compass you guys are relating to one another with, but you've got to recalibrate because there's got, there's, we're, not, we're not following rules. We're following a king. We're, we're imitating and living a life of imitation. Because of what he has done, where we've been made new creation. And so when you get to um, verse 14, he talks about being compelled by Christ's love, you know, this motivator uh, by the Spirit. Uh, verse 15 talks about how we're living for him, you know, not, not for, not for uh, payment, but for pleasure. And then when you get to verse 16, and this is the crux of it, this is what it means to be new creation. He's like, Paul's like, you have to have a new, new perspective on people. You can't relate to them. And when Paul says, according to the flesh, what he means is, according to, the, according to the normal cultural narrative. You can't do that. And that's what the church was doing. For example, if you were a person of status and somebody was not a person of status, 
you didn't, you didn't make eye contact with those people, you didn't associate with those people because it wasn't good for your social status in the city. You're a person of importance and prominence, so you surround yourself with people of importance and prominence. You're educated, you surround yourself with educated people. You're, you're not educated, then you, you, then, then you surround yourself with others who, who, who aren't, and you fire bullets at the educated people. You're a person of wealth, you surround yourself with people of wealth and success, and you kind of see yourself better than those who don't have it. If you don't have it, you surround yourself with people who don't have it, and you fire bullets at the people who do have it. And so they were taking all of these, the, these cultural chasms and they were bringing it into the church and relating the same way. And so what Paul says is, no, no, we, we, can't, we, we, we can't do this, Corinth. We're new creations. We can't do this, Redeemer. We're new creations. And so there's this, uh, there's this uh, calling to live out of the reality of the ticket of our freedom that our dad purchased in the past on the cross for us in Christ. We're supposed to now live out of the reality of that. So what would that look like for us here at Redeemer? Well, when we consider Corinth and we consider us, we think, you know, it's probably going to look like speaking to those who, apart from the gospel, you probably never would. Caring and loving for people who, apart from the gospel, you probably never would. Uh, Seeking to um, bring your gifts to bear to serve the life of somebody else in this room who, apart from the gospel, you probably never would. Because what we would do is surround ourselves with what we're most comfortable with and kind of live in that world. And that's what Corinth was doing. And so uh, it's, it, this is looking like this love and care and, you know, uh, not living our life uh, in the comfort of our own uh, smallness. And so the love and the care and the unity, you know, here in Redeemer, it's not based on having a common this or that. It's, it's uh, with the person next to you. The common ground is Christ. We're new creations, right? We love and care for one another. And, and it's not confined to having a similar background, similar political leanings, you know, similar uh, socioeconomic status. There's a unity the moment that we walk in here, and it's Christ. And the reason why Paul is encouraging us, as we you know, vicariously live through Corinth here, the reason why he's encouraging us to live out of this reality and to love and care in that way is because, one, our hearts have been so freed from the gospel, we're able to do it, which is, of course, a blessing in this community. But the greater ministry of reconciliation for those outside this community. You know, Augustine and the church father, Augustine wrote a 14-volume work called, um, or 19, called the city of God. And he was talking about how there's a new city in the actual city. And some churches, you know, they call themselves new city. Because really what it is, is it's this, is this idea that if somebody comes from the city into this community, their experience would not be, wow, these people are so much more moral than I, and right necessarily. Maybe, maybe they would experience that. But that's not actually, that's not what this is about. This is about there is a grace and a love and a, 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 and, a, and a rich community that is without barriers. But I, when I'm out there, I do experience the barriers. When I'm out there, I'm experiencing the are you in or out based on these factors. But then when I'm coming into this church community, I'm feeling like it actually doesn't matter who I talk to. They're all going to be kind of generous and loving toward me. I don't have to walk into Redeemer having never been to church a day in my life and be like, okay, man, 
I've got to make sure I find a Leaf fan who's also a liberal, who's also, uh, you know, a, a, makes a fifty to $85,000 a year, who also, because then I'm in my sweet spot. They walk in here, it doesn't matter. Whether you're liberal, conservative, you know, pick, Green Party, whatever, NDP, it doesn't matter. You're a Leafs fan, you're a Boston fan, boo, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. And, I'm, and by the way, I'm not advocating that, everybody's gonna, that everybody in a relational sense is going to be best friends. That's just not human and that's weird. That's not what Paul's advocating for. I'm talking about a grace and a generosity, a genuine care, a genuine care and love right? uh, for, for folks. This is the outworkings of the new creation. But we're not doing any of it to earn anything. And obviously, and I hope I've been clear about this for those of you who've been around Redeemer long enough, that doing that doesn't affect your status. If you walk in here and, you, and, you, and, and you've got a long streak of selfish Sundays, um, that does not impact your status before God. That's the scandalous grace. You don't deserve that. What you deserve is that it does impact your status, right? You come in here, you go, I'm having selfish Sunday. I think I'm better than that person. I'm not talking to them. And then you go home. What we actually deserve is God goes, that's it. All bets are off. But that's not how the gospel works. You have been accepted past tense. Your father bought the ticket past tense. It's done. Now we're called to live in congruence with that. This call to congruency. And so I'm going to close with this. He says that we're ambassadors and God's appealing to the world through us. Now, you know, maybe as I'm saying all this, you feel like you want to fall into the fetal position. You know, you're like, I have no time. I have no energy. I have no brain space to care for anyone else because I'm up to my eyeballs in my own pain and need and my schedule. And so here's what I want to lovingly encourage you to consider. Something has probably ascended to the throne of your soul that is much, much smaller than Jesus, incapable of liberating your soul like Jesus. And as a result of that, that little mini Jesus um, is not renewing you, is not refreshing to you, is not empowering to you. And if you have orbited your life around that, whatever it is, that thing that's smaller than Jesus, then when the text starts saying things like, curve out, church, minister, we go, nah, and we fall down, and we're like, stick a gospel IV in me, I'm done. That's the reaction. And so here's the encouragement for us to say, no, hold on a minute, why is it I'm having such a difficulty, and where, what has escalated itself to the throne of my heart that I'm orbiting my life around that is actually not filling me in this way, that propel me by the Spirit to want to do this, not for earning, for imitation from freedom. And so, verse 20, Paul says, you know, we are ambassadors for Christ. God appeals to the world through us. And the good news about this is that the power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. Paul's not... Remember Corinth? Remember those guys? What a mess. <coughs> that church was a nightmare. And Paul's like, go, you're ministers of reconciliation. So the power is not in the messenger. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's in the message. And that should make us humble and bold. Humble to share it. And confident to share it. You don't, don't disqualify yourself. Like, well, it's for loudmouth preachers like Paul who have a big mouth. Guys like... Him should be ministers in the city, but not me because of this. No, but I am nothing. 
The power is not in me and the power is not in you. It's in, it's in the message. That's why Paul says to Gongshou Corinth, go. He, this whole passage is about reconciling to himself. It's lousy theology if you think God loves you, hates your neighbor, but then when your neighbor comes to faith, now he loves their neighbor. If you think that's the gospel, don't share anything until you straighten this out. Because, no, 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 that's terrible. God loves his enemies. God died for his enemies. God saved us while we were his enemies. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do in reference to his enemies. You see, God doesn't start loving you after you come to faith in Christ. It is God's love that causes you to come to faith in Christ. It is God's love that draws to faith in Christ. So you see, this is what gives us the boldness and the humility to share the gospel in our, with, with those in our lives in our city. Because we're not sitting back like, whoa, this person is a mess. God probably really doesn't love it. I mean, they're going to really have to turn a lot of stuff around before God can love all of that. That that is a nightmare. That is not the gospel. That is the, that is the opposite of the gospel. So what gives us hope and confidence in being ministers of reconciliation is we know the only reason we're here is dad bought a ticket in the past on the cross and it is done and I'm in it and I'm living in the reality of it and my success nor my failure defines me. The cross defines me and now I'm free. And I'd like to invite you into that liberating freedom. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So may we continually find rest in this gospel. May we be revived and renewed by this gospel. May we love one another here in this room in unity around this gospel. May we go into the city in humility and confidence as ministers of this gospel. Amen.